Hey everyone, I'm your host Tom Shaughnessy and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Hey guys, I also wanted to tell you about Zenledger, the best tax software for cryptocurrency investors and accountants. It's fast and easy to use, and you can get all of your crypto transactions in one place so you can trade smarter and optimize your taxes. Zenledger offers 24-7 customer support by phone, email, or chat to help you get your taxes done stress-free, and it comes with a 100% money-back guarantee because they know you'll love it. Zenledger is giving an exclusive 15% discount to our listeners when you use coupon code CHAIN15. Go to zenledger.io, linked in the show notes below, to get started and get your taxes done fast. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have on Anatoly, who's the CEO of Solana. How's it going, Anatoly? Hey, really. It's going great. Great to be here. Thanks for hopping on. For sure. So you guys have gotten a lot of buzz, I think, most recently with Multicoin's investment and posts and you guys. You're pretty much a, a brand new project in this space. I guess it's best to hear it from you. What exactly is Solana? So like, I guess people hearing about us for the first time think it's brand new, but uh, it's a project that we've been working on for two years. So that's coming together. That doesn't feel as brand new to me, um, but... What is Solana? It's a, a high-performance blockchain. So if you want to think of like Ethereum as this world computer, we're building one that we think is the, the fastest one that's theoretically possible. Yeah, that's funny. I actually interviewed Urbit the other day, and I was like, oh, this is brand new. And the, and the guest is like, no, you know, we've been working on this since 2003. And I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, yep. It feels like that. So basically, you guys are a new blockchain. And one of the things that you guys focus a lot on is your high transactions per second, but while you know maintaining decentralization. I feel like a lot of people kind of have an issue with that in their head, just given all the talk on issues with past blockchains, you know? Yeah. So um, this all comes from like this whole trilemma that Vitalik Buterin came up with. I'm sure your uh, listeners have heard of this, right? There's this constant trade-off between performance, security, and decentralization. So when when we tell people, oh, like our public network that's got a bunch of validators or globally distributed can do like fifty thousand transactions a second, we must be doing we must be cheating somewhere, right? Yeah, it's it's actually funny though. I mean, a lot of the really centralized blockchains like EOS has 21 nodes and it can't get past, you know, a couple hundred transactions per second. Yeah. So um, the, the thing there though, like it, it's kind of ridiculous that they're that slow because this whole trilemma comes from the idea that at some theoretical limit, you hit bandwidth limits that you simply can't move at that much memory between that, man, that much information between all the machines in the same network. So therefore you have to split the network and you have two networks and because you have two networks like, are at full capacity in terms of their bandwidth, they cannot synchronize their state and therefore they cannot really come to full consensus, right? So that's where this trilemma comes from. But 100 transactions a second is 
like 10 kilobits, 10 kbps, right? I have one gigabit at my house. In our hands next year, we're all going to have 5G phones. That's globally one gigabit point to point between any two humans. <laughs> and yeah, you, it's you, you can fit like a million things per second in a one gigabit. So that that kind of problem, I think, when people start building these like other solutions that are really trying to, from what I can tell, these are they're trying to solve a computer science problem. How do we build these sharded networks where we have high degree of security, but we are able to split the state and the and the bandwidth? And that is like a insanely hard problem. And that's that problem is so difficult that like you see Ethereum Foundation and all these other projects struggling to ship, you know, concrete implementations that are robust and in the wild. We have a like a different thesis, and this is basically based on my background and my experience, is that there's hardware is just going to keep getting faster and faster. You know, like when we started, we, you know, we, we write a bunch of GPU code to do signature verifications. It took four GPU cards to do a million. Uh, now you can take 120 ABTI and just one card can do 3 million signatures per second. To achieve our like public testnet numbers, you don't even need GPUs anymore because AMD just doubled the cores again. So this is like an exponentially growing, like insanely huge and like really established industry that's just going to continue to deliver hardware that has doubled, it continues to double in capacity. So why fight that, right? Every two years, we either double capacity or we get twice as decentralized because the price of the hardware is now half half as much. Yeah, it, it's funny you bring it up. So you guys are basically just building off of Moore's law here. I guess the dumb question, though, is how exactly do you guys work with that hardware, though? Is it just people running better hardware as nodes? Like, where exactly do the improvements play into it here? Yeah, so the challenge, why I think not a lot of folks stumbled into this kind of our approach is because consensus systems, the way they're traditionally designed, have this kind of very static synchronization point. Like, you look at Tenderman or EOS or these other BFD systems, or like even Hot Stuff, even though it's pipelined, all the machines do one thing, they compute one block, they all agree on that block, and then they move to the next one. So there's this kind of like constant source of synchronous agreement that needs to happen before the the machines go do the next thing. Because of that, that means that all these computers across the entire world have to all talk to each other and communicate and send messages and come to agreement and then go do the next thing. So that kind of like the step function is like a just an immense pain point to optimize. So why we don't have this problem is like comes down to our secret sauce, which is like, you know, a marketing term for it is proof of history, you know, because every project needs to have a proof of something, right? <laughs> but <laughs> underneath it is this uh, mathematical technique called the verifiable delay function. What, what that means is like, the, like proof of work in Bitcoin, it is a cryptographic puzzle, but unlike proof of work where the more electricity you have, the faster you can solve this puzzle or the higher difficulty puzzle you can solve, this one requires you to spend real time. That no matter how much money or electricity you have or resources, it takes you some measurable amount of real time to solve. And that, that physical constant is based on the fastest possible 
fabrication process for a computer chip right now. So TSMC, you know, Mobile Foundry, Samsung, they're about to start shipping five nanometer chips. That's as fast as it's going to go. For you to, to make it faster, you have to go build a three nanometer fab, and that's like $40 billion. So, <laughs> and your speed up is going to be roughly like 20%. So within that bound, we have this problem that takes real time to solve. And it's very expensive for somebody to make it marginally faster. We can take this data structure and construct a clock, a source of time. So imagine like a water clock, but instead of water that's dripping and the level's rising, you kind of have this data that's being accumulated and that data represents the passage of time. So once you have that, once you have a clock, you actually get a big pile of distributed systems optimization techniques that have been around since the, you know, actually since radio, since like early 19th century. Got it. So a lot to unpack there. And I like the timing aspect, I guess. How do you think about like, what's the other definition of proof of history though? Like, so you guys have a global, is there a global clock or all the nodes computing time themselves? I'm just wondering how that works. It's global in the, because every node can recompute it and they can verify it, but there isn't like a single machine that's running this. So it's global because that information is available everywhere at the same time and doesn't require communication to, uh, for us to agree on it. So, you know, like here's an example. Like, so Google has this database called Spanner. They, it's globally distributed database and each data center that they run, they actually have an atomic clock that their engineers synchronized. So internally that thing uses like a cesium atom, right? And it's like moving at some physically bound speed and they can compute the time. And because their engineers synchronize it, they can trust it. And none of those clocks have to communicate with each other, right? That information about time passing is the same everywhere. It's bound by the physical constants of the universe, right? So in that similar way, right, even though it's not like a single clock, right, they have 10 data centers, they have 10 clocks, that global source of time exists for the entire network. And Anatoly, I really like the flex, though. I mean, basically, hey, Google, we, uh, we solved what you're doing in massive data centers by rerunning a hash function. <laughs> exactly. Our, our very clever, like, we're, we're not actually even the first ones to think of it. Right around that time in 2017, when I started looking into this, Intel published this thing called Poet, which is proof of elapsed time, which re- leveraged their um, secure enclave. So if you trusted Intel and you thought that the secure enclave was secure, which is not, then you could use Poet to kind of construct similar proofs. But where our kind of real innovation is, is being able to do this in this trust-minimizing, pure mathematical way. So that's kind of the neat trick here, that we're able to just take math and construct a source of time with it. If you want to get into philosophy, there's some really interesting things about that. So we can definitely can go in that direction as well. No, I I definitely want to. I just want to make sure I totally understand it. So basically what you're saying is that current blockchains all have to agree on transaction ordering and it leads to, you know, basically a slow network. What you guys have is every node could run time by themselves so that they could timestamp messages so they could have high TPS, but they don't all have to be in contact with each other. Yeah. So the, the problem comes down to like ordering block producers. 
like proof of work, right? It's this puzzle and it's designed so whatever the current hash power in the network is, it takes roughly 10 minutes to, to solve it. So that means that on average, every 10 minutes, there's a single block producer that produces this block and transports it. So the number of collisions that's expected is quite low. It's pretty rare, even though it happens occasionally, that two block producers produce a block at the same time, right? And the network sees a fork and has to pick one or the other. Um, if you reduce the difficulty of that puzzle, like Ethereum did, to uh, 15 seconds, then you get these things called uncles, which are much more frequent forks. And Ethereum does some clever optimizations to uh, kind of not wa not waste the forks, not waste the uncles like hash power. But at the end of the day, it doesn't allow you to produce more blocks and more transactions per second. Um, radio towers had the same problem, uh, but they kind of went a different way. So, you know, imagine first first radio network. We put up two towers and they transmit at the same time over the same frequency. You know, radio is an electromagnetic wave. Those waves, as they propagate, they interfere with each other. And that interference creates noise and therefore information can't, can't be sent, right? So that problem becomes worse and worse the more radio towers you add. So if you have two towers, right, and they both randomly transmit whenever they want to, you may have few collisions. But if you have 100 all of a sudden, everybody's talking over each other. So the first thing that people thought of was, why don't we give everybody a synchronized clock and they alternate? So everybody transmits at a different second, right? So you, you figure out when you're assigned, which seconds you're assigned, and then you can only transmit during that second. And if you violate those rules, the FTC goes and smashes down your, your tower, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's basically how it works. You know, now cellular networks, you know, you have like a million devices all connected to a single 4G tower. They're all synchronized within five milliseconds. Uh, so it's gotten much faster. And because of that, right, the lower the air you can get, the more concurrent participants you can have. That means the more blocks, right, in essence, this network can generate. So we have a clock that's, by clock standards, it's a crappy clock because it's, it has this kind of high variability between what it thinks one one amount of time is one unit of time is but it's a clock that is completely trustless there isn't like a single synchronizer there isn't like a global trusted network like tower that you have to trust or we don't have to like even trust gps or anything like that so it's solely based on this cryptographic puzzle which is shot to 56 that recursively loops over itself and that in itself allows us to stagger when block producers produce their blocks. So because they're forced to solve this puzzle and the difficulty for each one is different, it takes them a different amount of time, so they never collide. But when they do collide, it's rare, and we can, we can deal with that with those collisions uh, using consensus. So that's basically the trick. And that trick allows us to, to like... Improve, which I think the hardest thing in any of these systems, it's not TPS, it's latency. It's how fast does a transaction get encoded into a block and the network agrees on that block. So right now for us, it's like 400 milliseconds. And this is global network, you know, validators in China and Korea and Singapore and Europe and North America, South America, Africa even. I think there's a node in Australia. If you look at like the map, it's literally a global computer that's synchronized within 400 milliseconds. That's pretty cool, I think. 
No, that's really cool. And I really like the explanation on time and on the wireless comparisons. It makes it a lot easier to understand. I guess the other naive question for you is, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum, everyone talks about security, the cost to mine, social consensus, all of these things that feed into security. What's the security underpinning you guys? I know you said time and it gets really expensive to basically run the script faster, but you know, is there a way somebody could hack this? Like if somebody gets a better chip faster from, you know, Intel or something like that? So for that aspect of it, you can be a block producer more often than you're supposed to, but you have to reveal that you have this faster chip. And that, that in effect is problematic for proof of stake networks because stakes are kind of like, so under, underneath, right, proof of history, it, it's just a source of time. It's not a consensus mechanism. It doesn't allow us to come to like a an agreement, like Byzantine font tolerant agreement, like where we have M of N agreement between all between the network. So some civil resistant mechanism is necessary. And for us, that's stake. If you reveal that you're a faster block producer, you may be able to generate more blocks than you're supposed to, but it's not like an attack that will stop the network. So in that sense, from a user's perspective, you, they may actually see better performance. From a validator's perspective, they may see a validator that's producing more blocks than they're supposed to. No, that's fair. And Anatoly, this might be a question that drives you crazy, but you know, you guys are obviously focused on you know scaling without sharding, and there is, for lack of a better word, a tsunami of developers focused on sharding layer one blockchains. You know, take your pick on the smart people in the room. Why are you got like why are they spending so much time on this if it's you know kind of a solution you guys have solved like I'm just like there's clearly a disconnect in where people are spending their time you know Yeah so I think this is probably my background like I I spent most of my career at Qualcomm which is maybe a company that not a lot of folks have heard of but they're kind of the intel of the mobile industry so I spent like 12 years literally working in optimizations making making all of this like cellular radio and like operating system stuff go as fast as possible. So when I realized a oh, blockchain has a scaling problem, I went to what I know, right? Which is, this is how we scale. <laughs> this is how we scale like networks, you know, to billions of people globally. So why don't we do the same thing here? I, like, hey I think guys, we already have a solution here. <laughs> the, the sharding part I think comes from, it is a, it's like a really tough computer science problem. So a lot of the folks, I think, that are coming into the space, building these scaling solutions are more academia background. And maybe that's where it's coming from. At the same time, I don't think we've seen a lot of sharded solutions shipped. So Zilliqa is one, and they don't actually shard state. So they've avoided the the kind of the hard problem. That's why it works. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, that that's funny. I mean, the other question, though, is do you really think that sharding on other layer ones won't work like are you like do you think ethereum 2.0 just straight up won't ship no it'll ship like it'll ship with caveats right like maybe it's going to be not like a thousand shards it'll be like 64 32 maybe it'll each maybe it'll be slower than ethereum one in in any single shard right so there, there might be a lot of kinks to work out but at the end of the day i think that that system, right, that's built is going to be worse than a really, really fast single shard that doesn't have 
these like that that's super low latency. No, that's fair. That's right. Fair. So, so for for developers, right? Developers that have users, like from from what we have seen, there are more companies that have kind of web two user bases that they're experimenting with crypto. You know, instead of there's like a real business plan here that you can take your web two ecosystem that has a bunch of users. And instead of stealing the user's data and selling it for ads, you can introduce some crypto economics and have those users create better content, right? Better social networks and just through the transaction flow earn earn money to pay for the all the servers and all the engineers. And that is like I think a super interesting model right now because it's, you know, the content is better because it's not advertisement and the users are better have a better time because their data is not being stolen right yeah <laughs> and and like and all you're doing is like introducing like a way for the users to monetize their social graph their relationship themselves as well as like this this network itself to me like those are those kinds of like ecosystems are ripe to for adoption and those systems can't really work on sharded chain because you know, let's say you have a million monthly active users. How are you going to split them into shards, right? Like if half of the, if you split them in two and half of the interactions now have to go through cross-shard communication and like do this big synchronization step, you're not talking about like even waiting for, you know, like 90 seconds on Ethereum or an hour for six confirmations, right? Like it, it becomes like a, a very, very not fun development environment. Hey guys, I also wanted to tell you about Zenledger, the best tax software for cryptocurrency investors and accountants. It's fast and easy to use, and you can get all of your crypto transactions in one place so you can trade smarter and optimize your taxes. Zenledger offers 24-7 customer support by phone, email, or chat to help you get your taxes done stress-free, and it comes with a 100% money-back guarantee because they know you'll love it. Zenledger is giving an exclusive 15% discount to our listeners when you use coupon code CHAIN15. Go to zenledger.io, linked in the show notes below, to get started and get your taxes done fast. No, no, I, I understand the point. I guess the question I would push back on, I guess, is, you know, let's say that you guys have better tech than Ethereum 2.0. Like, let's just say for argument's sake, it, just for the sake of the question, let's say you guys have better tech, but Ethereum has all, you know, arguably has all the dApps, all the current devs, Web3 guys, like there's just so much going on there on the dev side. And I feel like, you know, they'll make it work. Like, do you view their developer mode kind of like as a mode or, or how do you view that? Developers are, don't have modes. Like I'm an engineer. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not, I use the best tools for the job, right? Like, it's not like I care whether I use Postgres or MySQL or whatever. You just, if you actually have a real problem to solve, you use the best tool for the job. Reality is that like you look at data that DAP Radar published, there's what, 20,000 daily active users between all the DAPs together. And a large chunk of those top used DAPs were not like very like cool, right? There were Ponzi schemes. So yeah, I guess the other, like, how would you think about, though, like, other moats? Like, liquidity is a big moat, like Uniswap or something like MakerDAO. Like, there is kind of, like, winner-takes-all or winner-takes-most kind of moats here that kind of go beyond developers, right? 
that is, I think, is a like a really interesting and cool phenomenon. And I'm not sure if Ethereum has a moat there, but they definitely have a resource that's very hard for anyone else to replicate. But at the same time, like you look at Tezos and Cosmos, totally different blockchains, right? Both are now worth over over like near a billion something in market cap. Does Ethereum's 10, 20 billion market cap present such a huge moat versus Cosmos or Tezos? Like, I don't know, right? But like, to me, it seems like there's some diminishing returns there. Um, and I don't know, I don't know how value is going to be captured, but like, I think, again, the way I look at the space and what we're doing is, you know, it's internet 1996. I may even believe that in, the, in 1996, imagine if somebody told you that, hey, you know what, we're going to, the internet's going to become 3 billion people and we're just going to connect them and get them to share pictures of their cats. And that's going to be worth half a trillion dollars. <laughs> Probably would have laughed you, at the time. Right? Like You're like, no, the internet's going to be used for like real communication and businesses and all this other shit, right? Like reality is that nobody knows what the killer application is that's going to capture the most value. Right now, we're doing a bunch of experiments. I believe it's DeFi as well, like everybody else. But I think DeFi needs like hundreds of millions of users for real value to start accruing. The only networks that are going to get those hundreds of millions of users, I think, are going to be built like ours, where you have highest possible capacity for like, you know, and, and lowest possible latency. So you can actually handle like, even with a million monthly active users, you run a promotion and 10,000 of them hit the same button at the same time, your shard is going to fall over, right? That, that's kind of like the problem with all these other designs. I don't think they're building for this like end state where we have a global single world computer that everybody's using. Now, it's a, it's a pretty basic example you bring up that would actually be really hard to do right now. Yeah. It's funny you bring it up, but... I guess the other question for you there is, and it's interesting to get your thoughts on this. Um, a lot of other layer one teams in the space, you know, when I interview them, they come on and they say, you know, hey, we're not interested in Ethereum's developers. We're interested in, you know, the world's developers. And, you know, I always take an issue with that because you really have to dominate a niche and like prove your product market fit before you have, you know, millions of developers or something come on your platform and use your tooling. What's your take there? Like, do you think you have to win over other chains or do you think you have to like attract outside devs? I, I know we're still early. I agree with you, but I'm just kind of wondering on that competition aspect there. I guess I've always, I mean, it's probably again, my failure as, as like, I can't imagine us building like a, like, I, I guess I don't believe that this, there's this whole idea of, of B2D, right? Businesses for developers like where we can court developers and they will somehow do something useful. I always think of it as like B2B, right? There's businesses that have an opportunity. They need to go execute on it. How do we help them? If there is no opportunity, it doesn't matter what we do. So for us, we're more looking for like projects, ideas, and that could be a single developer that wants to build something out like an MVP and try to right, try, try to start from there. Or already an established company that's, doing something with crypto that may have started in Ethereum is now using some random chain internally. So for us, it doesn't matter. We actually have to give them something that they can't get anywhere else, right? Or help them somehow. This, this is how I kind of frame it in my mind. 
And the way that we are able to like sell Solana is that, look, if you're using blockchain already, we don't have to sell you on the idea of using blockchain, but here's a much faster, cheaper one. Now, a lot of use cases, that doesn't matter, right? If you're doing like real estate transfers or something like that, nobody cares. <laughs> you, don't need, you don't need Solana for that. But we have a partner with like a, over a million monthly active users is going 20, 30% every month. That's who we're onboarding and they have a burning need for faster and cheaper. So that's kind of my ideal outcome. Um, if developers have like an actual need, right, they'll come to us. I think Ethereum has had success because of the kind of their, where they came from. They were the first real like platform for people to build anything. So they have first mover advantage. The people that did start early made a lot of money in the, in the, kind of in ETH itself. And they have absolutely have no desire to leave, right? Like if I have a bunch of ETH and I made a lot of money, why would I try to build on anything else? Um, but at the same time, if they have this, a runaway success, right? They have a bunch of users and all of a sudden it becomes a business problem that Ethereum is too slow and too expensive. And that's kind of a very clear, simple decision. No, that's fair. The framing, I guess, is understandable. And I mean, I, I'm not going to lie, your, your investors clearly agree. I mean, you guys raised what, $20 million back in, I believe, late July, I think? Uh, so that was all together that we raised from uh, our seed round till uh, end, end of July. It's in about, like, in about three rounds, if you think of it that way. No, I mean, it was a, it was a calm summer on the fundraising front. I feel like that's pretty solid. Yeah, um, but we haven't, you know, we're not like a team that raised hundreds of millions of dollars. Like, I, I think <laughs> we are just very blessed for a Silicon Valley startup, but we're not like, you know, runaway crypto crypto rich, right? We're just a, a startup that is executing, that has enough funding to, to accomplish what it's set out to. Yeah, well, it's funny. I mean, not to name names, but I, I can. I mean, the, the teams that raised at billion dollar valuations like Definity are nowhere. And the teams that raised, you know, sub 50, sub 100, you know, you guys, Blockstack, Near, take your pick and see my full disclosures in the show notes um, are actually executing. So it's kind of like a weird trade off between funds raised and progress. Yeah, I think I think we see a, a runway that is diminishing, right? <laughs> in, in in real human measurable time, and we're like, we need to execute a ship now. While if you know if you raise a hundred million dollars and you have like a a normal sized engineering team building this stuff, you may never need to ship, right? Yeah, it, they literally have no incentive to to get to work, but. You know, back to your earlier point, one of the things you brought up I thought was super interesting is that, you know, you guys aren't fighting Moore's law here. You're basically using it to your advantage. So the better hardware that comes out, the better your network gets. What so basically you guys don't need like layer two tech to grow your throughput here. You just need, you know, AMD and Intel to keep, you know, basically taking advantage of Moore's law and shipping better hardware. Yeah, so Moore's Laws, people understand it. You know, people say, is Moore's Law dead? What they typically talk about is clock speeds. Like, we're, we haven't seen clock speeds over like three and a half gigahertz uh, commercially for a long time. But what does continue to happen is the number of cores, and especially cores in GPUs that don't have to synchronize on cache, 
those keep doubling like every two years, like clockwork. So if you build software that is like designed for hyper parallelism, um, you can take advantage of it. And every two years, we can either, you know, double the amount of capacity this network has for, for the same cost or reduce the price for every validator by half, right? And therefore, you know, when people t- say Solana, like, are the validators too expensive? Our validators are the same ones that are running all the other networks and they're all running Solana on the same soft hardware as all the other networks. Because when you go out and buy hardware, you just get the standard set. You don't go buy Raspberry Pis <laughs> if, if you're running like a, a bunch of validators, right? Um, so we're just able to leverage them a little better. No, that, that's fair. And I guess the other kind of question down this line is that, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about you guys out there. And I know we discussed a few offline, but I'd love to hear from you. You know, what do you think is your, what do you think are some of the top misconceptions about Solana or about what you guys are building? Probably like one you mentioned is like, people think when I say global clock, they think there's some single node that's running a clock. So that that's one. There isn't a single node that's running a clock. It is a virtual clock that's globally available everywhere because everybody can recompute it. So it's kind of mathematical construct. The other one is that like because we always talk about how hardware helps us scale, people think that validators are going to be too expensive to run, or like they imagine data centers that are synchronized. Reality is that like a single computer these days or like even your phone has over a thousand cores in their GPUs. So that thing, like my phone could probably handle a million signatures per second. The rest is just bandwidth. So it's not that we are like, it's not like we're taking absurd amounts of hardware and scaling blockchain. It's that we're wrote software that doesn't suck and is able to use the hardware that's there. (laughs) Uh, we, We recently had a developer take a $5 droplet and get over a thousand TPS on our in our little bench dust. So that's like the, the cool thing there though, and this is like the really cool thing, is you can deploy this a thousand TPS droplet for five bucks a month. And that's probably where you're gonna see steady state, right? Like you we're we're unlikely even with our partners that have like over a million monthly active users actually see steady state, you know, more than a few hundred transactions per second. But what's cool is if there is a huge spike, that $5 droplet could just fail over to AWS, to whatever, to a much bigger machine for the 10 minutes that there's a lot of demand and process that data there and then come back down to this like low-cost device. So just because we say, like, hey, we're, we're scaling with hardware, people don't realize that hardware is very elastic. You only need to pay for what you're using at, at demand. And that's kind of a really, really cool thing. Yeah, it's like the AWS playbook, basically. Exactly. So just on progress and kind of your roadmap here, you know, where are you guys on your path? You know, do you guys have your main net out? Just wondering kind of progress. It's literally like we just had like a, yesterday, we got everybody together and decided if we're going to do a go or no go uh, for launch. And I think it's a go. We seem to have kind of all our fires under control. And we think we'll do like a, a dress rehearsal launch end of the month and then a week later, the mainnet. So caveat, what is mainnet? Um, so we think mainnet, like 
it's kind of like mainnet beta where we feel pretty good that there aren't any exploits or bugs that could break consistency. But it's a network that we wrote with a lot of sleepless nights, literally like the first line I code was two years ago. We've been trying to ship this thing as fast as possible. So we want to make a caveat it that like, look, this is MVP software <laughs> as best as we could. So availability might be the thing that could suffer. And, you know, I think in six months, we'll see if we're, if we actually have bugs that are like, would bring the network down for an hour or two, or did we actually do a pretty good job in finding all of them? As far as we can tell, there's no main big issues, but we want developers to understand like, hey, first week of the network, it's the first week of the network. No, it's it's always a fun time, and I, I don't I can't imagine how much sleep you probably have to catch up on. I I guess the other question is, you know, how did everything go with your test nets and stuff like that? Because if you guys are this close to a mainnet, they must have uh, they're obviously closed now. Oh man, yeah. So I mean, we started trying to onboard validators last summer, and just everything you could possibly think of going wrong went wrong. <laughs> uh, just even even going from like getting validators to to run nodes on Google Cloud with us to open internet, just a lot of weird edge case assumptions that we made about how data is going to propagate. We're all wrong. We had to like rewrite the network stack and optimize it, and um, getting like these operational issues, like validators accidentally reusing private keys between test nets, stuff like that. A bunch of bunch of small things that. Caused a lot of weird errors. Um, fixing all of those took a while, and it is kind of like coordinating cats. But it's a it's a <laughs> it's a cool process because the the folks that do run the software that are validators they're like the core community now. They've been with us from like the days that things barely worked to now where they seem pretty stable. So it's kind of it's been a, a really cool fun experience from that. In that perspective. No, I mean, you want to find all those bugs, you know, before you go live, right? Yeah, of course. So, Anatoly, another question for you. I mean, you guys have a lot of tech. I mean, we talked a lot about proof of history, but there's like a laundry list here. You know, Tower BFT is your, basically your consensus mechanism. You have Turbine for block propagation, Gulfstream for mean poolless transaction forwarding, Pipeline VM, CloudBreak, Replicators. I'll link to this in the show notes and, and let everybody look through what all of these are, but I'd rather just talk about them in aggregate. You know, every layer one I talk to is, you know, still building out their tech. It seems like you guys have been able to, com- you know, create this entire working stack in two years. Like, why aren't people talking about this more? Engineers love like building stuff. There's a lot of like, even within a single large company, there's this like thing called not invented here. So <laughs> it's this phenomenon that engineers want to go solve the hardest problem because maybe that's what they taught. You know, you spent like four to eight years in school learning how to solve these computer science problems. When you see one, you want to go try stuff out. Right? So I don't know, like, why wouldn't Ethereum 2.0 use like code that near built, even though the designs are very similar, you know, and vice versa. That to me is, I think, uh, like a social phenomenon. Um, you also like you look at anyone else's code, and 
you uh, it's very rarely that you don't see like some reason not to use it and i i think what we'll see actually is the projects that will succeed the most are the ones that can cannibalize everybody else you know that that can actually take lift pieces out and 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 start integrating them as fast as possible yeah no i i, I definitely am one to believe in the winner take most in the layer one side that's why i've always you know, had an issue with interoperability protocols, to be honest, just mentally, but I don't know. I guess we'll see. It's, I've thought as, like that as well, but now I'm not a hundred percent certain. Like, I, I don't know if there is a, if there is like a single chain to rule them all because the security assumptions between all of them are so different. Yeah, that's fair. I definitely don't think we'll, we'll land on one. I definitely think it'll be a few. I just, you know, some people have these visions where everyone will have their own blockchain or there'll be thousands. And I'm like, it just seems like so much work, you know? Well, do you think that like, if like Libra succeeds, do you think that Fortune 500s in the US will launch their own blockchains or will they use Libra? Or will they use a public one? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's a really good question. I mean, to be honest, I think that's why some of them backed out of Libra. It's just because they saw the competition there and maybe they don't want to go up against it or maybe they want to run their own chain. Definitely could make sense. Right. I mean, like if, if Libra starts getting traction and like, I, it didn't make any sense to me that Visa and MasterCard would be using it because they have their own networks. <laughs> like they're basically like, let, would let Facebook cannibalize their user base from inside out. Yeah, whoever was doing the sales at Facebook to sell that to them, I, I applaud them because they got them through the door before they figured it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Anatoly, you talked a lot about a partner you may have. We didn't talk a lot about it, but you mentioned it. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of, you know, use cases for Solana, you know, where you see kind of people using you guys out the gate. You know, do you have people waiting for your mainnet to go live? Love to kind of discuss use cases there. Yeah, we've been um, we've been like I guess focusing more on the B two B side. Um, we do have an accelerator program that's open to developers as well, uh, and would love to see more folks apply and, and building stuff that really requires a high performance chain. Um, the kind of use cases that I imagine that I would love people to experiment with is more on the kind of near high frequency trading side, so like. The first pitch deck for Solana was like, okay, what are the main use cases? Well, we have a high-performance blockchain. It is, I think, by definition of engine of price discovery. So like stuff like that flash loan hack, I think, is like the, the perfect culmination of what a blockchain should be. It's a state machine where you have a lot of crazy financial instruments and bots should be trying to exploit them like as fast as possible. And... If we have the fastest version of that, then it should have the most fairest open prices to anybody globally. Um, so we actually built like a little matching engine that can do about 30,000 price updates per second. So I think at that speed and performance, you, get, you can start doing interesting things. And I would love to see people try that. Um, like even things like where you, know, you have a bunch of validators that are all block producers. They should be running like arbitrage bots to figure out which transactions can exploit the current state. And by exploit, I mean like remove arbitrage and create a fair price, right, for everybody else. So 
that that stuff I think to me would be fascinating. I'd love to see folks experiment there. Where we have traction with like other projects that have reached out to us is things like micropayments because you can't really do micropayments in Ethereum and on, on uh, anything else really. Uh, you need for for the web you need low latency, and that that's really what we have an advantage. We haven't again probably because of the team's background. Uh, so myself and a bunch of the folks are like former Qualcomm engineers. There's an interesting challenge in uh, like 5G, especially the rollout in the United States. These towers, you know, that we've talked about, like 4G towers have a range of 30 miles. 5G towers are about um, 500 feet. So the density that you imagine, like for like cellular towers that are going to cover coast to coast is orders of magnitude higher. And it becomes like a real-time billing problem. Because as you're driving, you're switching different operators and you're continuously using multiple towers, multiple quality of service, multiple data streams, and everybody needs to get like appropriately built for that. Yeah, it's a really interesting point you bring up. I used to be on the telecom and cloud team at, on the equity research side on Oppenheimer, and we used to dive into 5G, and it was such an engineering hurdle a couple of years ago when it was first talked about because... You know, if it was raining, the signal wouldn't travel. You needed massive MIMO. You needed backhaul. You needed to adjust the spectrum. You could only use, and then they had, you know, the spectrum auctions for billions of dollars just to use, you know, different levels of spectrum. It just seemed like such a such an issue. So when I see, you know, T-Mobile, Verizon, AT and T advertise five G today, I mean, I know it's fake, but yeah, it's a joke. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's no way you're getting multi multi gigabit speeds with low latency on you know a first five G network. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it seems to me though that developers should be moving to you guys if it's there, right? Like something like a decentralized exchange where there's real issues with delays in confirmation times, you know, it seems like something like that on the DeFi side would make a lot of sense on Solana. Do you think that you'll be able to attract the DeFi use cases that need high throughput? I mean, I keep going back to this idea that you have to break the community to do it, but I'm just wondering what you think. Again, like it's infra, right? Infra in itself does not, like we have a, like, do you know the folks at DDEX? It's an awesome group like that's out in China that run like a decentralized exchange in Ethereum. We've been uh, close friends with them for a long time and kind of product we're experimenting with is like doing some form of high frequency trading that they could expose to their customers. That that part in itself, the fact that it's faster, isn't what users really care about unless it translates into them having a better experience, which it will a bit because their trades can can clear and execute faster or take more risk on the trading side, right? So where that matters is because it's higher frequency, right, or faster block times, the spreads and the latencies and settlement are much lower. So you can actually expose higher risk products, higher margin products to their users. And so there's opportunity there, but... The key part to success there isn't, I think, the, on the infrastructure side, it's on the user side, <laughs> attracting more real users that want to use this stuff, not for the tech's sake, but just for the actual usage sake. Um, and as a layer one, right, like we're not a, 
B2C company. We're not selling something that my parents would use. Like we're, we're like a high performance, you know, like synchronized chip, but like global chip, right? So more, almost more like hardware, you know, maybe more like a database, but like, I don't know how the expectations that people have that layer ones are going to bring about like the era of blockchain, I think is misplaced. It's going to be more on like companies and that have users or, you know, individual developers that can experiment and build something cool that catches fire. No, I like the framing. It's it's fair. You know, I don't expect my parents to ever really use this stuff, to be honest, at least not now or anytime soon. The other thing I'd love to talk about, obviously not a recommendation, but I just like to know how it interacts with your platform. How exactly does the sole token work within your network? Is this something used by validators, by stakeholders, Visa payment? Like, what is it used for? Yeah, there's only one token. It's the civil resistant mechanism for voting. It's also burned for transaction fees and for state rent. So it isn't in itself kind of like the, you know, in like an operating system term, it's like the file descriptor and the kernel. It's a kernel resource. You need more of them to do more stuff, right? To to use more cycles when you execute a, a program or to to vote with larger weight. So no, that's fair. I'll link to uh, I'll link to in the show notes the, to your white paper as well for people who want more info there. And and it's only I know we're wrapping up, but I I'd be remiss if we didn't get into this philosophy idea you brought up in the beginning because I'm I'm interested. Oh. I wrote it down. What is uh What's your philosophical take on time? Or I might be misremembering what you said. Yeah, there is like this really interesting observation that mathematical constructs typically have some smallest physical representation right so like imagine i took multiplication of two numbers and i arranged atoms to to basically do the multiplication like the smallest possible set of atoms and that algorithm is physically run through the atoms and you see the result like so at that level right you can kind of imagine computers as being some form of this but much less much farther away from the smallest possible implementation of anything right but we don't have this representation for time. Like there's a physical process for time, but we don't even have a mathematical explanation for it. That what is time, right? So you can think of uh, Chapter 56 as this kind of magical function that takes data and transforms it in such a way that information is lost and cannot be reversed. And if you run it over and over again, that sequential process is almost like a mathematical representation of time. It literally is like an implement, like an algorithm for time, a physical thing that we experience on a day-to-day basis, right? This, this approach to bi- building that construct could be like how time is actually constructed, right? <laughs> and it's kind of mind-blowing to think about it that way. Yeah, you're you're throwing me for a twist here because you know once you start to think about it, you really really go in circles with this one, and a lot of people really don't like to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. There's a. I mean, it, it's kind of related to this like famous problem, uh, P versus MP. The the fact that there is this set of problems in math that are um, that we have no guarantees that they can be executed or they can be solved very quickly. Kind of like the Bitcoin puzzle, right? We we have no real guarantees that there isn't some magical quantum machine that can solve 
that puzzle in like instant time. But we also don't have a proof that there is, that it's impossible to do that or that will ever be possible. And there is idea that we may live in like a universe that is is designed. It's our mathematical properties of our universe are such that it's impossible to construct even a proof whether there is a fast implementation of of any of these things or there isn't. Like we may never know, right? <laughs> and that, that's like a really cool thing to think about. To me, like on, on like a spiritual level, it implies that if we live in a simulation, it is so sophisticated that it might as well be like beyond us, right? Yeah, no, it's. I, I'm glad we're down this rabbit hole. I'm I'm just thinking through to like all the sci-fi movies I've seen and and the Matrix and everything here. What do you uh, What do you personally think? You think we're in a simulation? I like like I said. I think if we live in a simulation, it is so sophisticated that the machine is simulating us is effectively godlike, right? It's beyond our understanding. No, I definitely agree with beyond our comprehension. I'm just wondering, you know, whether that machine is then in its own, you know, world and it just goes on and on above its comprehension. Well, that would be, that means we understand it, right? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, look, let's, uh, let's just be happy about the, the new clock you guys have. All right. Let's be happy with proof of history here. (laughs) down for that Anatoly absolute pleasure having you on uh, very chill episode learned a lot I, I appreciate episodes like this it was fun where could people follow you and, and learn more about Solana we have a Twitter we have a Solana.com website it's a very active GitHub if you're actually interested in working on a layer one we would love folks to just jump in and work on the core code I mean a lot of people talk about focus on developer adoption and all this other stuff, but I think it's critical for decentralization to actually have a project that's being built by a large group of people outside of the core team. So we're, we're looking for folks that just kind of love working on these hard problems. No, I, I definitely think that's valuable. You need that global base of different minds and different people. All the links Anatoly mentioned will be in the show notes below. You guys could scroll down, check out their site, blog post, Twitter, and, and I'll link to their GitHub as well. Anatoly, thanks again for the uh, awesome episode and your time. Likewise. Thank you so much. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon. <laughs>